Today, Tim and I sit down to ramble on about some key points we have encountered throughout the first half of Season 3. In this episode, we talk about our current training status, monitoring movement KPIs, connecting with the body on a more frequent basis, reframing pain as information, pushing into and pulling away from exercise during times of psychological stress, the value of just listening, engaging physically with life, and much, much more. If you like this episode, we would greatly appreciate you subscribing to the podcast as it will help us keep going for the long haul. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. Michelle, good morning. Good morning, Tim. Thanks for uh, waking up early on the West Coast. It's, uh, it's nice to see the sunrise. Did you just refer to Colorado as the West Coast? I did. That is my that that's the cutest thing that people from like either the middle of the country or East Coast do when they come to Colorado. It seems like a completely different world away. <laughs> I think California would maybe take a little bit of umbrage with uh, describing Colorado as a coastal state. <laughs> I just have no desire to enter California. That Colorado just seems like the other side of the country because I would actually want to go there. It's as far west as you'll go. It is. I, I gave you a little bit of crap for this earlier, but it, it seems as if you have a vitamin water and a fancy sparkling water and all manner of beverages available to you. And a coffee. I have, <laughs> it's just constant. I just have like a little bit left in each bottle. And I think there's about four bottles and a little bit of coffee on my desk. I don't know what's happening. That's when you know like It's like, it's a sign and a symptom of things getting out of control in my life. It's somewhat controlled chaos though. Yes, exactly. Which uh, is as good of a segue as any I can think of for what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> kind of kind of controlling the chaos of, uh, of training and managing the uncertainty of exercising with some degree of pain. But before we get there, I thought we could maybe flip over a stone that we haven't flipped over in a couple of years. Um, do you remember what question we used to ask every guest on this podcast, Michelle? Um, no, I don't, to be honest with you. Is that embarrassing? Something about uh, what things have they maybe? Oh, the learning. Well, that, yeah, yeah, that was the actual useful one. But I I think we had it. We had an even more nonsense one that we started things off with. A training one. What have you been doing for training recently? Yeah. It's like, tell us about the last workout you did. I don't give myself enough credit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the last training session I had, is that the question? Yeah, that could be the question. Yeah. Was on Monday. Um, it was Labor Day. And basically, I took the morning for myself. I drove up to New Hampshire and I did multiple summits at a mountain uh, near here. And basically, it was just the intent was just to gain as much elevation as possible um, with low mileage. So it's just running up to the summit took me about an hour to get up there. I would basically turn back around, take me about 45 minutes to get up. And I did that a few times. I even took like a new trail to the top. So to me, that was like insanely exciting. That was like the highlight of my day. I was so happy. Um, And that was an ending to the week prior was one of my highest mileage weeks in the past couple months. Uh, I did 60 miles in one week. Um, that is insane. Congrats. Thank you very much. Um, so I have a 50 miler race in three weeks. And in a few days, I have a 50K race. So kind of peaking with my mileage per week. And um, so I've kind of uncovered what makes me feel the best. And honestly, I felt totally fine after doing all those miles in one week. Um, But what makes me honestly feel the best is a day of elevation training when I go onto the trails and do a lot of incline. And I think it's 
not having my hips being pushed forward so much at a fast pace, like on the road and then coming home and doing all of my quote unquote, like uh, hip mobility or repositioning exercises, I wake up the next morning and I just feel like absolutely rejuvenated. Um, so that was the last workout I had. I got home from the mountain at like noontime. I think I ran for like three and a half hours and then did some repositioning exercises and relaxed the rest of the day. And I, my hips feel awesome and I feel like ready to go. Right on. What was the overall like mileage and gain of that day in the mountains? So the gain was close to 4,000. And again, mileage is pretty low. So it was a little under seven miles. So that's solid. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. Like the the total, I don't care about how many miles I get. It's just all about like climbing and making it steep and then being able to navigate a very like technical terrain down, just like jumping from one rock to the other and making sure I don't uh, trip and tumble down the mountain. That was always the kind of the cool thing about trail running for me is there is this like coordinative balance reactive aspect of trying to go downhill very fast that you mm -hmm. definitely don't get in, you know, if you're like racing a mile around a track or training for a marathon or anything. Exactly. And I I think it's the ultimate form of agility because, you know, road running and flat, you always know where your next step is going to be, even if you have to take a change of direction. Whereas trail running, you never know where your next step is going to be. And you have to take a lot of focus and energy on navigating the terrain. So it's just a lot of quick change of directions and unexpected, and you just have to adapt all the way down. And it makes time go by insanely fast, and it keeps you very focused on what you're doing. Yeah, which, I, yeah, I, I feel the same way about climbing, even though it, it kind of time does not speed up, it, it sort of slows down, but you can only be focused on on the thing if you're climbing outside. Yeah, it's, it's it, the def, it's like absolute meditation. It's movement meditation. You are not thinking about anything except like where your foot goes or in climbing, like where your hand goes and, and that's it. And to me, I find that very, uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's almost like romantic in a sense. And I think that's why I've kind of fallen in love with it a little bit. Yeah, I get that. I think that trail running has done that for me too at times where it's, I mean, you get to the I remember uh, trail running the Franconia notch loop up in New Hampshire, like oh, four yeah. or five years ago, right when I first moved to Boston. It was, yeah, I mean, it was uh, like poetic, that the type of beauty of just like running from mountainside, mountaintop to mountaintop and the trees being this like almost purple type of green. Gorgeous. Yeah, that I know exactly where that is. And you're right. It's just, it's amazing. I assume How that... I assume that you and Dan Sanzo get a little bit more into your uh, specific mobility drills in the episode you recorded with him. Yes. Um, I had okay. to peel him back a little bit, but yeah, we talked about the exact drills that I've been doing with my repositioning kind of 15, 20 minute um, routine and, um, and why he kind of chose those and what he sees um, in me. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a couple minutes too. Yeah, I, I, I like that. Cool. Um, yeah. What have I been doing? Uh, I did not train yesterday, uh, but the day before I had a pretty good indoor bouldering session with a buddy that's kind of looking to get into bouldering and uh, doing some sport climbing stuff. Um, yeah, I think that was that was like I started with probably 10 minutes of my own mobility repositioning type stuff, which at this point just gets me out of. I would say moderate pain that back towards like mild discomfort. Um, and then when I have these climbing days, I like to do some kind of lower body thing just so that I feel like I trained most parts of my body. So I think I did um, some like high intensity, continuous training, step up type stuff for about 10 minutes before I bouldered for about two hours. Uh, so that's, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like mentally it sort of scratches a lot of itches for me. Like the, the step ups were a good leg burn and made me feel like I got some lower body stimulus and then, uh, certainly pulling on some plastic rocks with a friend and like shooting the shit and kept it pretty chill. Like everything was probably like V2 to V4, but got a fair amount of volume in on my hands. So, uh, once that session was over, I felt like I got some work in, had some fun, had some social connection. Um, yeah, felt very productive. That's perfect. It's, it's such a different 
us too, like talking about our last training sessions are probably so different than if we had the same question asked to us about five, five years ago. I don't think I would have had the same enthusiasm as what I am doing now. It's interesting because it's like only when you start to peel away this red line intensity of physical existence or training, I think, do you start to appreciate the nuance of everything else that's wrapped up in it? Mm hmm. Right. Like for, for me, it took me a really long time to get away from the track or to get away from like lifting really heavy. Mm -hmm. And only then, uh, did I have bandwidth to start to explore like trail running or going on these really long hikes. And only then did I start to realize like, it probably doesn't matter how fast I'm doing it. Like there's another reason. And I think, you know, like you described, it's like the beauty of the natural world or uh, for me with climbing now, it's the people that I'm doing it with. Yeah, exactly. And I think I feel the exact same way. I think I'm entering more races because on a day-to-day -day basis, I enjoy the the beauty and the just the activity of trail running. But at the end of the day, I do like putting myself in situations where I have to prove what I'm capable of doing and providing like an opportunity for myself to really push hard and see and see what, you know, I can, I can still do. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you got, you got many, many good years ahead of you running. I know I'm, I'm peaking. The older I get, the the more you peak in uh, long distance running, I feel like. Like a, are you a wine or a whiskey? Uh, neither. <laughs> <laughs> no, no alcohol consumption here. <laughs> like a well-aged tequila yeah I, I i actually i think this this dovetails pretty well into the first thing that you and i wanted to uh get into which i would say the overall architecture of today's conversation is sort of this cornucopia of different topics that you and i had rattle rattling around in our heads um thinking about sort of training and chronic and persistent pain and then also uh, things that have sort of uh, come out after having discussions with some guests that we've had over the past few weeks anything to add there yeah, uh, so I think we're going to chat a little bit about like monitoring movement KPIs, um, key performance indicators, or symptom tracking at different time points around training. Is that was something you want to dive into? Yeah. Yeah, so, I, I think so. So one of my biggest things is, it, again, it's it's so hard because I've had recent conversations with some clientele, and it's it's really hard we can track things, but when someone only comes to see you one or two times a week, and that's pretty much the only times they're being active during the week, it's really hard for them because one, I think they have like a bit of a disconnect between their bodies and being able to understand what they're feeling and even acknowledging symptoms and tracking points. And then also if that's the only time you're being active, that's the only time you're experiencing maybe when those symptoms will arise. It's very hard with general population clients, in, in my opinion. But when I've been doing this high-level performance activity, especially with my interactions with Dan Sanzo, who was a, a guest, I highly suggest people listening to that episode. I mean, I feel like I have a good relationship with my body where I know where the boundaries are and in, in learning that symptom tracking along my training. I've kind of learned that when I start to feel a little bit of a pressure in the front of my knees, which I don't ever experience symptoms, that's honestly like where the barrier is. I know things are being pushed a little bit too far where I have to really manage it and take a step, take, take a step back. Especially when I get into a lot of road running, that's where I really tend to feel it's pretty much focal loading going in, into my knees. And that's where I need to focus more on like, um, I do a lot of repositioning exercises for my feet and hips. Um, and that's where I, I know maybe if I've skipped something or whatnot, I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to go back on that. So that's kind of like a, a point for me. That's like a red flag where it's like, okay, like you need to take care of this or take care of yourself or, or training's just going to consume you. And then monitoring movement KPIs, um, that's really where I work with Dan Sanzo and, and him being able to look at my range of motion. Um, I know how I 
feel the certain symptoms that pop up, like my adductors or hips will be a little bit tighter. Um, again, I, I don't want to say that I experience pain. It's just, I, it's more restriction. And that's where he talks about movement restriction as focal loading. And that that's where he kind of has a lens towards movement with. Um, and then also like what makes me feel good. Cause a few minutes ago I did talk about, you know, elevation training makes me feel good. And then following it up with some uh, movement activity. Um, so I feel like I'm, I can manage it through those and how my body is uh, reacting, but I know what things are kind of set things or push me a little bit more forward, um, which is road running. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I've learned through like my training. Um, what about you? I, I think we have a lot to delve into there. I was just kind of taking notes as you were, as you were talking, um, kind of going in the order that you brought things up. And this is I, maybe not even something that's um, worth having, having any kind of debate about, but I just think it's, it's something worth underlining for our listeners is this notion of disassociation versus connection and a relationship with your body. And this is something that um, me and Sam Leffers talked about a couple episodes ago, but uh, you know, your example of some clients that you work with, they're only coming in to see you, you know, twice a week. And that's the only time they're ever active. So it's like the only time they're actually getting in touch with their body. And I think this is one of those big leaps forward that I can take clients to if they come to me in chronic pain and they're not doing anything uh, that approximates a physical existence. Or maybe they go on like a couple walks a few times a week. As soon as possible, I try to get them to training six days a week. And, and training might not be intense. I mean, training could be, let's do five minutes of repositioning work um, and then get on your you know bike for 15 minutes. But what I've found is that if you can get people engaging with their body, with their physical self on a more frequent basis, then you have a lot more touch points where folks can start to notice things. Like you brought mm -hmm. up, like when I start to feel this pressure in my knees, that's not even pain, but it's like, that's a leading measure of me getting further away from ideal position. And I would assume that it, the um, that knee pressure would sort of, if left unchecked, like you would eventually start to get your hip symptoms. Would that be a correct assumption? Yeah. So I, I just kind of think there's there's so many people, and I'm I'm sure you see this too, where you start to work with them and they don't they really don't know what they feel. Like all they can tell you is that this particular area of my body hurts and I want it to not hurt, but they don't have any kind of relationship with well is that pain changing uh, at different points of the day as the day progresses uh, with different types of activity? Does the sensation itself change if, even if it remains painful? I think all of these things are worth delving into with clients on a far deeper level. And then is this low-hanging fruit that we could have the most impact with some of our clients with in terms of getting them to do stuff, again, very low barrier entrance level outside of when they see us? And more so just having them think about what they're feeling, how their body reacts and getting them, like you said, to do that more frequently. Is that something we can make an, an absolute enormous impact on, especially when it relates to like persistent pain clients? I, I, I kind of think so. Like this is something I've heard Kelly Sturette talk about in recent podcasts that like his one of his earliest interventions when he works with people in persistent pain is just have him do a long walk every day. Because he knows that a long walk probably isn't going to exacerbate symptoms. It's almost certainly not going to worsen someone's, you know, uh, movement and, and mobility profile, but it just gets them doing something where they're moving their limbs in space and they're breathing a little bit more quickly and they can start to build this working relationship with this is my body and yes, it hurts, but it can still do some stuff. Yes, absolutely. And even just the, you know, I've had someone who try to get them to go through two walks every day, just even 10 minutes and tr we're trying to work their way up. But even just them realizing that their morning stiffness, quote unquote, after they do a 10 minute walk in the morning, it decreases. Even just making that association has been insanely impactful. I, I think this is also really useful with people that tend to over associate with their like specific pathology 
or radiography or MRI report because it's like the they logically know that though like whatever the thing is let's say it's like a torn hip labrum or a you know some kind of like a herniated disc like they logically kind of know that that's not going to change that much within 20 or 30 minutes of waking up so if they do feel different like let's say they're really stiff when they wake up and then 45 minutes into their morning they actually feel 50 75% better it gives you a good platform to have that conversation of okay well do you think your labrum untore in that for or or do you think there might be other things at play and really it's the other things that tend to live in both of our respective domains um and areas that we can actually influence and create some positive change yeah and that kind of relates to a few people that we've talked to on these episodes in terms of how they even communicate what pain is and it's like i'm not directly trying to solve your pain problem i'm just trying to provide you some movement options and a lot it's very complex. I don't know if this is going to take away your pain, but typically it will give some relief to people. Yeah, very well said. And I think that that brings me to the kind of the second thing that I wrote down when when you were talking, this notion of sensing pressure in your knees and just viewing that as information mm-hmm. as opposed to, oh, this is the thing that happens before pain and it's time to shut down. And this is something I discussed with uh, John Pope, founder of Building the Elite, trains a lot of like special operations type guys. But, you know, I was asking what are the kind of like the characteristics of your most successful operators that are dealing with some degree of chronic or persistent pain, which he was he was honest. He was like, it's 100 percent of my operators are dealing with some kind of chronic or persistent pain. Um, but he said that the ones that tend to succeed view pain simply as information. Like they don't, they don't ignore it where they're just like running through a wall. Although he says that's, that's a lot of them when they're earlier. Um, and they also don't feel something and completely shut down. So like for you, if you're on a hike or on a run and you start to feel that pressure in your knees, what I imagine is you don't stop the run. You're just like, oh, okay, this, this is when it's starting to happen. And I know it can get some position back via some mobility stuff, but this is good information that my body is uh, giving me versus, oh no, the thing is happening again. It's, it's time to shut it down and slap some bags of ice on my knees. We will be back after this quick message. The biggest struggles trainers and rehab professionals have with building and scaling their online training programs, attracting remote fitness clients, and maintaining communication is having quality videos that provide exercise technique and coaching instruction. Well, now you can stop searching the internet. You will never find them unless you go to michellebowen-training.com for the best exercise database on the internet. Imagine all of the funny looks your programs get when clients are trying to figure out what an exercise on their training program is instead of having clear instruction. Gain access to over 1,500 exercise videos, coaching tutorials, and hundreds of positional instructional videos to send to your remote clients with the new digital format of the MBT exercise database. You will not find a contralateral reach walking lunge, a military crawl designed for posterior expansion, or a frontal plane hip shifting med ball slam on YouTube or anywhere else for that matter. The new database dropped in 2021 and hundreds of fitness and rehab professionals Use it to easily build out their online training programs with built-in buttons to insert the videos into personalized training programs or to use videos to send to their rehab patients for at-home homework. The database will transform your training business by drastically improving scalability, improving communication with clients, and teaching them proper technique from afar. If you don't believe me, Dr. Pat Davison said, and I quote, this database is a goldmine for coaches who care about executing movements for athletes that can legitimately impact sports performance and health. So head over to michellebowen-training.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. Yes, exactly. Like I, I definitely do not stop, but maybe I'll take some road running away and maybe do some more exercises um, uh, outside of running for sure. 
But that's a really good point. Just viewing it as information and not like this huge red flag, fear driven, like shutdown. Yeah. I mean, it's because I think a lot of the, and this is something that uh, Sam Levers and I talked about in, in that episode, but a lot of the actual pain wrapped up in pain is more accurately described as suffering because it's, it's the emotion of pain and it's us future fear casting about what the present pain means versus just dealing with the present pain. And, and we talked about this in the context of both like emotional pain and physical pain. But I think in the context of physical pain, it's like, you know, you, you feel your knees start to get a little bit, um, a little bit more pressure, a little bit more uncomfortable. You could choose to emotionally engage with that and say, oh man, I bet there's something wrong. I'm probably going to need an MRI at some point. Or you could just choose to say, yeah, there's some pressure around my knees, but I'm still running. And this is just information. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna notice it. I'm not gonna ignore it, and I'm not gonna spiral because of it. Exactly. And I know what I can do to peel that back a little bit, and I can probably remove it pretty soon. Um, I think that's something that after my episode with Dan Sanzo, I think when I was engaged in a conversation with him, he's a, he's a good friend of mine. But when I'm working with him in a session, I I purposely don't really ask certain questions because I almost don't want to know the answer to them because there's a difference between being like a coach and um, on the other side of that as like a client in terms of when I was talking to him on the podcast, he basically was like, yeah, if we don't fix your foot, like get movement into it, because basically there's just focal loading being pushed down into my foot, not allowing any kind of like rotation. Um, and right now I wear a little bit of a pad in my right foot, do some exercises for it. But he's basically like, if we can't get your foot to move, we have no shot at like your hip getting to move better. And, you know, again, I try to avoid knowing those things because it does put this almost like fear factor in the back of your head where it's like, oh, no, like if I can't do this, you know, I could never be fix quote unquote, or like this will never go away. And, you know, I think the rest of the day after our conversation, I was thinking about that a little bit. And then, you know, 24 hours later, I completely put it out of my head because you can't, you can't live like that. That's almost just information about like what he's focusing on and almost like his job where I do the, all the exercises and everything that I think I need to, I'm not having pain in my foot. But just someone saying one thing to you could really have a huge psychological impact and almost create a barrier towards anything that you do in the future. And, and that's almost equally as like scary in, in terms of like the client coach relationship. Yeah, yeah, like David Gray talks a lot about um, like nocebo versus placebo effects and mm -hmm. his big, his lens by which he views communication is uh, one of largely positivity, like even at, at times, like not unrealistic optimism, but uh, realism, but just skewed more optimistically. So it's mm -hmm. like, you could say the same thing in a lot of different ways, right? You could say, if we don't get this foot to move like a foot, that hip is never going to move like a hip. Yeah. And that's going to have a certain emotional impact. But you could also say, hey, if we get this foot moving a little bit better, I think we can get a little bit better motion up to your hip. Both of those things are just as true. They're conveying the same information, but the overall emotional tenor of either of those is dramatically different. Yeah, absolutely. That That's a really good point. It's really all about just being careful about the words that come out of your mouth and making sure you, you know what the impact they're going to have on the person that you work with. Also, in terms of like KPIs, I feel like last season we talked about them a little bit. And I think there's a movement, especially when people are very highly biomechanical focused, therapists, whatnot. It's like, oh, let's keep an eye on this hip internal rotation. And it's like, okay, like I even personally, after going through all this stuff, don't really think that's too useful. And for me personally, it's like, well, I'm not like really checking my hip IR every, every second. It's like, I know what that means in terms of how my body feels probably a proxy to that movement restriction of that IR and my hip. And I think that's probably more of something to have people communicate with than 
listing that as a KPI when really that's probably not being measured or appropriately measured by them. And maybe you're not seeing them that frequently where they could have a really hard day at work and that can impact the measure kind of a thing. Yeah, this is where this is where we might have a point of disagreement. I, I, I'm I'm not sure, but I'm I'm kind of stoked to get into this a little bit more. I think that in the best possible case, people like you and me, or just people that like train in a structured way and have some degree of discomfort, probably are working with some type of movement professional on at least a monthly basis that is doing some kind of assessment of ranges of motion. Yes. Because I think that that's, again, to your point, it's, it is a proxy, it's a proxy of the movement system. Like I don't, I tend, I don't care about hip internal rotation because I care about hip internal rotation. I care about hip internal rotation because it, it gives me an idea of what the system is able to or not able to do. And I think that as life stressors change, as training stressors change, if you're able to longitudinally track these ranges of motion, it gives you a fighting chance of modifying your interventions accordingly, be it choosing to maybe peel back on some strength interventions that might be stealing ranges of motion or uh, kind of meriting the inclusion of certain mobility interventions with the aim of regaining a little bit of range of motion. But I think if we're not, if we don't have any kind of system of tracking these things, then we're still kind of like stabbing wildly in, in the dark of just like, oh, strength training is good. Uh, doing doing some positional respiration work is good. It's like, no, we. I, I think we need a little bit of a higher standard to um, prove or disprove the inclusion of something in an athlete's program. Yeah, for sure. When you're working in person, I think, your level of care does have a higher standard and you should be doing stuff like this. But I also want my client to like maybe associate some symptoms or how they're feeling with maybe possibly having some more restriction or freedom in certain areas. I also think about my like remote training clients in terms of, well, I'm not there to put my hands on them. So how can we how can we kind of move around this or like, how's your split squat looking today? Like send me a video of like your split squat or, or getting them to have more of a connection um, between like these movement restrictions. Um, so I, again, I think it like has context, but yeah, of course, I think in-person needs a, a lot higher standard. Yeah. And again, in person, if you're working with a professional, it's like when I have a, a patient in my clinical space, it's like we're looking at hip internal, external rotation, hip flexion, straight leg raise, toe touch, squat, shoulder rotations. Like it's kind of the, you know, what, what Bill calls a chessboard. It's like trying to get as much data as possible about the state of that person's movement system at that point in time. We probably don't need to go that far with remote training clients or even training clients in general, but I, I continue to really like the notion of something like a split squat, something like a toe touch, something like a full squat that a person can easily self-assess because again, mm -hmm. it, it helps a person to develop more of a vernacular with what they're feeling in their body on any given day or as time progresses. Yes. I like that a lot. And again, it's going back to what you said about like connection of like, oh, if I do a toe touch or a squat every day, it's like, I'm associating that with, with how I feel and, and how it looks. Yeah. Even, I mean, going through this left hip stuff I'm currently dealing with, it's, it's some days I have an incredible amount of tightness in the front of my left hip, but I wouldn't describe it as pain. Mm -hmm. Some days I have, you know, this deep ache within the joint. Some days I just have sort of that similar feeling of discomfort, but on the back of the hip. And it's, Something that me and Sam Leffers talked about a couple episodes ago was trying to be as curious as possible when going through times of, uh, you know, negativity or crisis. And in my mind, it's like, oh, okay, this, the, all of those are somewhat negative sensations, but they're just sensations. And it's interesting to me that things can kind of hop around. And I think it's probably my body giving me information about the state of my movement system at that moment in time, as opposed to just, as opposed to just like, Oh, this, this is the same thing. And it sucks. It's like, no, if, if the sensations that your body is giving you are variable to some extent, it just means that there's a bunch of different inputs into the system that maybe we're not fully accounting for. And each of those inputs represents a potential avenue for improvement. 
So instead of viewing this as like, oh, this sucks, it just hurts. It's like, oh, that's interesting. It, it's changeable. And if it's changeable for reasons that I don't understand, it's like, we'll seek to understand those reasons a little bit better. Yes, 100%. And I think I talked about this a little bit on, on the Dan episode is I went and saw him maybe the Sunday before we recorded. And uh, he's like, oh, I don't really remember your hips like being this, this shot, basically. And um, I was telling him that that week prior was not necessarily a high volume and running week. It was very stressful in terms of like a, a lifestyle and, and work week. And I I knew that I'm very aware of like emotional and like cognitive stress leading to physical symptoms. And I think my body was sending me more sensations because of that and less more about my training. But it's information also to use in your training because if I'm feeling more emotional or cognitive stress, I typically purposely will drop down the physical stressors. I, I won't keep pushing it because then I think you're asking for a little bit more consequences. Yeah. It's like, what, what state are you in at the start of your training session? And that has everything to do with life stuff, sleep stuff, diet stuff, relationship stuff, like a, a, a solid mobility warm up will only get you so far. Yes, exactly. Um, so that's even even more information from people and even to get to make that association of like, some people don't even realize that they'll come in and be like, Oh, my body feels this way, that way. And then you ask them about what's going on in their lives. And they, they really haven't made a, an association about like, how lifestyle stress can affect like their physical symptoms and that, what they can do to kind of mitigate that a little bit. Or it's this, I'm sure you see this all the time too. It's this notion of exercise as self-flagellation. So it's like, if something isn't going well in their life, um, you know, per personally, professionally, whatever, it's like, they want to train harder to compensate for that without having the understanding that it's all pulling from the same well. And what they need to do is, is exactly what you just described. It's like, these are the people where I'm like, okay, let's just chill. And let's just, instead of doing, you know, 10 sets of 10 trap bar deadlift and sprints, like let's maybe just do some body weight, respiratory split squats and some zone two stuff on the bike, get out for a walk, um, still spend time training, but like, let's ratchet down the intensity a ton. Cause we don't really have a good window to push legitimate adaptation right now. Yes, 100%. And I think we've both lived that. I think I, I've gone through that point where I just wanted to, I was probably in grad school, like stressed out. And then you just rip it as hard as you can in the gym as well. Um, but yeah, I see, I see that all the time. And, and the lack of association with those two things is, is information that people lack a lot, especially at the, the gym. I kind of rent space from, you can see it in a lot of people. Yeah. And I, I really, I, I do think that it falls on our heads to give people a version of what they want, right? Um, it's certainly like a good training experience or a good physical therapy experience, but we also need to have both hands firmly on the steering wheel and guiding things in a long-term direction that is going to be more useful to their overall physical and mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think that the other point I wanted to chat about today and kind of get your opinion in terms of a therapist and coach management, um, especially with persistent pain clients or basically nagging injuries, you know, managing this, providing empathy and listening versus monitoring and pushing. And it's kind of based off a story. I had a conversation with a client a few weeks ago. You know, he came in, I think he's stressed out of his mind with working on his own business. And he had a like catastrophic injuries to his knees about four years ago, um, excuse me, about maybe six years ago. And then started working with me four years ago. And he's like, you know, is this my new normal? Like, I can't even like play with my kids in the backyard. Definitely can't run. Um, can that can't like walk down the stairs the same way. And I think it's him, especially viewing me almost as a friend wanting to talk and me listen um, and, and empathize with him and just hear 
kind of what his go through and help him make sense of his experience. Because at the end of the day, he does come in, he likes to work hard. We're monitoring, we're pushing, we're trying to make progress with his knee movements and what he's capable of doing. And I think, you know, a few days after I had another conversation with him, because I almost took that in a personal way, like I'm not doing enough, like, am I not fixing this guy's problem? And he said that that's not basically how he intended it at all. He thinks that he would never even be able to walk um, again if it wasn't for me and how I'm helping him in the, the best ways possible. And he can't even imagine like where he would be at if he wasn't working with me and all the stuff that he's capable of doing now. Um, and I think it was he was just trying to make sense of his new normal and the way his life is going to look, even though he's trying to keep pushing and monitor and we're monitoring through him that, but it is this balance of me putting responsibility on myself of trying to solve this guy's problem versus looking at all the stuff that we've made changes on and positive things that we've done and, you know, function that we have gotten back um, and so it's kind of hard, especially with someone who's in this thing that may never go away. You know, how do you handle that? And especially with, um, you know, a therapist and coach relationship. Yeah, I think and thank you for sharing that uh, first and foremost. Um, and I'm glad that you've been able to have such a you know positive effect on this on this guy's life and well-being and relationship with his body. Um, when you when you talk about that, I think about sort of a journey that I've been on with my own stuff, which is that the the set point, like the baseline is where I currently am or where a client currently is. It's not where they were and it's not where they want to be. It's like their, their zero point is how they're coming to see you. So it's like if this guy's zero point is he's running and he's playing basketball with his kids, then he's per- he, if that were the case, he'd be perpetually living at like negative five, negative seven, right? Because he's like so far removed from that. Mm-hmm. And I think that for a year, if not like two or three, I had been living in that state of like every day I woke up and thought that I like, well, I'm I'm not lifting heavy. I'm not running instead of just realizing where I actually was being okay with that, recognizing it's not the worst thing in the world, and then just trying to move from that new zero to like a plus one or a plus two. And I think this is, and maybe this is not exactly getting into like managing communication, but I I do think it's, there's something about expectations and goal setting here that seems really, really important, which is like, you, you can only have any of these conversations when a person authentically realizes like where, where they actually are. Yeah. And when you're with someone, I think the biggest lesson here is when you're with someone for that long, recalibrating and coming back to that. Okay. It's been a year. You were here. Now we're here. This is our new kind of state that we're in, like starting point. Where are we going to go the next year? And I think when you work for someone with someone for that long. This season of More Train, Less Pain is brought to you by my remote fitness programming service. We've been talking a lot about navigating the minefield that is attempting to train and improve fitness while dealing with persistent pain. If you feel like this directly applies to you, it can be daunting to attempt to construct your own workouts and long-term programs. Personally, one of the best decisions I ever made was to outsource that process and hire a coach. Someone who's external to the day-to-day reality of being in my body and my brain that can take my preferences, feedback, and athletic goals and coalesce them into a stable, doable fitness program that I could execute. It's an honor to serve in that role for my clients and my athletes. Stop banging your head against a proverbial wall and spinning your wheels changing workouts every week. Start investing in a long-term process to discover what your body is capable of and the long-term progress that you can make. Reach out via the contact tab on timrichart.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. Maybe at the tail end of that, you can kind of start losing that um, and making sure you're just constantly checking in. 
and and creating those those points of communication, I think is is probably the biggest lesson I had from that because we hadn't talked about it in a significant amount of time. So I think this provided that opportunity to establish like where we were at and like um, and how things were going. When you look at the literature surrounding kind of like the management of acute pain and injury versus chronic pain, things start to diverge pretty rapidly. So it's like, because you worked in uh, collegiate sports for for quite a bit, like, you know, this super well. Um, when, when an athlete is injured, uh, we generally want to do everything that we can to keep them training with the team, right? Yes. Yeah. Like you, you, like you want them to stay engaged with that identity. Like things get really wonky if they peel that back. So it's like you, you want, want to make sure they're still eating with the team, doing as much of the training with the team as possible, because like you want to keep them in that, uh, in that mode. And you want to convince them that this is just temporary and that in a few weeks they're going to be back. Yes. That's accurate. With, with chronic pain. And I think more, more of the pools that you and I play in these days I think it's the exact opposite. I th- I think you need to get people to have some kind of peace with where they currently are. And the fact that it totally sucks. And it's like like you you like you need to have this more realistic long-term view of things because it's the only place where I feel like they can actually get a stable footing. Of I, I remember, you know, back in episode one this season you gave the, or, or you posed the question, like, what would this look like if your pain never got better? Mm-hmm. It's like, do you, do you still want to engage with life? Do you still want to improve facets of your physical existence? And for me, like that's, that's been the floor. It's like, well, like, what if this doesn't get better? Like, can you still do enough to have a life that's sort of like worth living and worth engaging with if yes. And hopefully it is. Yes. If it's not, yes. Like see a mental health provider. Um, but if it's yes, and it's like, okay, cool, then let's try to make it better. But we need to start to do away with some of the identities and associations that you had around fitness and around participation previously. Yes. Uh, And showing them a different way to go about things and how they can still have that physical existence, just, just not the picture and what they thought it was going to be. But also looking into other aspects of of their life that they possibly can have intervention to. Because again, with us, we think like, you know, we're going to make an intervention very movement-based and physical-based. But like this client in particular is about 80 pounds overweight. Is that a point of intervention that may have an impact on his knee pain or his, you know, feelings or symptoms or sensations that he's having with his body? possibly right is there is there's always a way that we may be able to make a difference yeah i I, yeah absolutely and i I think that's part of the beauty of what a physical therapist and trainers and strength coaches do is is we have these kind of lengthy interactions with patients with clients and we see them on some kind of a regular basis it's like we we really are well positioned to attempt to at the very least educate people on the everything else that might matter to improve their situation. Yeah, or bring attention to it. Again, it's making that connection, right? And I I think there, another thing came to mind uh, when you were telling the story about your client, but this is something that Dan John talks about all the time. But this idea of like engaging the heart, like trying to engage with a person's soul. And I think for, you know, for you or for this client, rather, he shared like he wants to be able to more meaningfully engage physically with his family. And so Mm -hmm. it's like if you're a trainer that's just obsessed over the biomechanics of the thing in your mind, it's like, well, this is extraneous information. Let's not do this. And if, and maybe if you're too far to the other end of the continuum, you're like, you have sessions become therapy sessions and yeah. they shouldn't be that either. But if you can even just spend a couple minutes at the start of a session, like really getting to know what, what is on that person's mind at that given point in time and where they're trying to go as a human being and not just as a person in pain or a person that wants to get fitter. It's like, you can much more effectively engage with whatever their motivational mechanisms are. Yes, exactly. Um, I think I've heard someone say like the quickest you can, the quicker you can become friends with like your clients, like the better outcomes that you have, but it is related to that. It's like knowing a person so well that 
you're just more engaged to actual things that matter to them versus like things that just matter to you or like certain expectations people have like coming to the gym. Yeah, I, I'm very uh, heavy handed with when I have this conversation with patients, it's like the first or second thing I ask them when they walk into my treatment room is how are you as a human being? And I think half of them like roll their eyes, but it's like, I, A, I'm legitimately curious. Like I care, like I care about everything else that's going on, but I also want to know the overall context that your symptoms and your pain and your fitness program are kind of existing within. And I think that much earlier in my career, like I, I didn't care. I, it was just like, my job is to improve this range of motion or reduce this pain. Um, and frankly, it makes our jobs much more enjoyable when we, when we can see the overall context that our interventions are existing in. Yeah, 100%. And they get better at making those connections. Like, oh, he's going to ask me this question. How actually did I feel this week while doing things? Yeah, absolutely. Any right. closing thoughts, Dr. Michelle Boland? No, this is good. I think just exploring this one topic over the course of this season has been great, having some great conversations, little tidbits and lessons from people. So I'm actually even excited to talk to more guests. I know I have Dr. Pat Davison next week coming out with an episode. You just talked to David Gray. And I'm excited for the next episode we do, which is like basically the season countdown. Yeah, yeah, which which is wild. It's been a wild ride over the past couple of weeks. I think one, um, just one like practical recommendation for people, because I, I kind of forgot to include this when we were talking about symptom tracking, but this was an Instagram post from like a year or two ago uh, from me. But I think if you're someone that's designing your own training and you have some degree of uh, chronic or persistent pain, what you're looking for, hopefully, is that when you're doing exercises, uh, we're not ratcheting up pain or having any bouts of like sharp or acute pain while you're doing something. If you're slightly flared up for a few hours after that, that's okay. But we would want symptoms to dissipate sort of around that like six to 12 hour mark. Um, and that should coincide with not losing any motion. Like if you're, if you're tracking any kind of motion baseline. So just in terms of like day to day, nuts and bolts, like meat and potatoes recommendations. Like I, I probably say something like that multiple times a day. Okay. We should definitely dive into that last episode talking about like specific practical strategies that, um, yeah, we I think so. All right. All right. All thanks, right. Tim. For sure. Thank you. If you're enjoying what Michelle and I are putting together here, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on your pod player of choice. Reviews help us climb the rankings, which improves our ability to help more coaches and therapists continue to push our industry and knowledge base forward. The intro and outro music for More Train, Less Pain was produced by Jacob Azurdia. You can find out more about his music by visiting his Instagram page, J underscore Z-U-R-D-I-A. Thanks for listening.